John was perhaps the most important and influential of all the forerunners of the Protestant Reformation on the continent of Europe. He was born a peasant in 1369 in Bohemia. During his childhood, he was influenced by the writings of John Wycliffe. As a faithful student of the Word, he would often become troubled about many things that he read. He was often humbled by the sins known only between himself and the Lord. He would even become so troubled when he would lose a game of chess that he would get angry and furious because he lost. And he found that his temper would often rage because of his own sinful heart. As he studied the Bible and began to read, he found the gospel to be the only means to sully his soul. Ultimately, John Huss would be burned alive for his teaching that he led there in Bohemia and throughout Prague. But it was his lasting legacy, his teaching on the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority of Scripture that the Bible rightly translated into the language that men and women could read was transformative. It would transform sinners into saints. This is why he and others like him who were the beginning of the Reformation, the light that would shine into the 16th century, they gave themselves over to the Word, even dying gruesome deaths like being burned alive your own books and own writings being the kindling that brought about your own death. Someone doesn't do that unless they believe in what they teach. It takes a a sense of confidence, doesn't it? An overwhelming assurance that, that what I'm teaching is truth. After all, who would die for their friend? Much less for someone less than a friend. It is a wonderful thought to consider the importance of the Word of God as it reveals truth about us as humanity. John Huss was instrumental in getting the Word out to the people because he knew that it was the Word of God that became the salve for his soul when it was wounded because of sin. And for you and I this morning, as we consider what is probably the most famous of all of Jesus' teaching, perhaps even more well-known than Jesus drawing with His finger in the sand with the adulterous woman in John chapter 8, is this story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son. In fact, this title itself deceives us in our own interpretation and understanding. I hope to show you this morning, it's not about merely the prodigal son. But the parable is really more about the older son. Both sons are lost. And my question for us this morning... And the question I leave you with, which son are you? Which son 
are you? Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 serve as the context. And I want to give you a sense of what Luke is doing in organizing the material in this way so that you would receive illumination and understanding of what we're trying to think about this morning. Luke records that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And it was this occasion of these individuals, tax collectors and sinners. It it is an interesting phrase, isn't it? As if there was tax collectors in in a category all of their alone by themselves. It's like, well, I thought we were all sinners. Oh, no, no, no. There's sinners and then there's tax collectors, right? Right? It's tax season, we all, we all know what I'm talking about, right? They're sinners, and then there is IRS agents doing audits on our taxes, right? Government. But what made these tax collectors a unique group, why they were set apart, is because they were Jews who were seen as traitors. They worked for the occupying Roman Empire, And their job was to extort their own friends and family members and take the extorted money and pass it up to Caesar. They were despised by their people. But Jesus, we are told, welcomes them. They were coming near to him. And Jesus opens his arms and and he received them and he ate with them. And the religious leaders were incensed. They were maddened. How dare Jesus invite people like that into our community? How dare Jesus invite these vile, wicked Gentile lovers into our church? How dare they invite the worst of the worst to participate and to fellowship? Does Jesus not know that when he gets around the unclean, that he will become unclean too? Jesus welcomed the social outcast, the notoriously sinful, the traitors, and those who rejected God's law. And these masters of the law could not stand it any longer. They saw their community being overrun with riffraff and the worst of society. And Jesus was all about it. And he was the one perpetuating it. And it was with this context that Jesus told three parables. Invite you to look at these three parables as I read them now. He's writing and he's speaking to the religious leaders. And he says this to them. So he told them a parable, verse 3. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek delight until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything and severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when his father was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. and Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing. He called one of his servants and asked, What these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, who killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to his son, Son, you're always with me, and all that, you're, that, that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And I hope as you've perhaps for the first time read those three parables together, got a sense of what Jesus was doing. Jesus was a master storyteller. 
He would tell parables to blind, blind in the eyes of people who are unwilling to listen. Listen to it again. Something was lost. Something was found. And there was rejoicing. Something was lost. Something was found. And there was rejoicing. Something was lost. Something was found. And there was anger. There was no rejoicing. Jesus told these three parables together in order to drive home the overarching point. That those who have no need of a Savior will not be saved by Jesus. Those who understand themselves to be good enough before God Holy enough, righteous enough, obedient enough, attend enough church and attend enough Sunday school and give enough money and do a lot of great things for God, they will find no Savior in Jesus. They will find nothing but anger. Jesus here in these parables is completely, radically transforming the thinking of these religious leaders. They think that it is the best of the best who merit the kingdom of God. But as the story unfolds and as these parables drive towards, Jesus welcomes into His kingdom all those who turn from their sin through repentance and turn toward Him with trusting faith in His atoning sacrifice. We could organize this text really in two ways. First, rejoicing in heaven and anger on earth. And the overarching call is, will you celebrate what God is doing? Will you find out where God is working and meet Him there? These religious leaders thought that God was working through them. But God wasn't working there. God was working through Jesus. And He's calling us in this text this morning to say, will we join in heaven's party over repenting sinners? Or will we continue in self-righteous anger? How dare God forgive sinners when He forgave such a great sinner like me? I hope this morning that we cultivate among ourselves a heart of repentance and also a call to repentance and faith to those around us. Number one, we see that there is rejoicing in heaven. Jesus tells these two parables and both of them follow a similar pattern. Something is lost, something is found, and there is rejoicing. The first parable is familiar to us Jesus says, what if, what if a man loses one of his sheep? Jesus tells a parable in such a way as the conclusion is, of course he will. He would be a fool not to. These sheep were expensive. They were his livelihood, his property. To lose one is significance. It displays a sense of urgency in which this shepherd would go and find one of his lost sheep. 
But not merely does he find it, but just like any of us, if we lose something of value and we find it, what happens? We rejoice. We're excited. We're happy. I lost my car keys. I lost my phone. I lost my wallet. And there it is, right where I left it. And there's rejoicing. Jesus here is drawing upon the experience of every one of us who's ever lost something. To find something that you've lost naturally instills in us a great rejoicing. And both of these parables paint a picture of desperation, don't they? To lose a sheep, or here in the parable of the ten silver coins, to lose one coin. Uh, Imagine, if you will, if uh, you were like the the poor man there in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the uncle who always forgets he's there. He, he forgets the money there. And, and Mr. Potter comes along and, and snatches it up, right? And, and steals the money from the man. And the, the whole story kind of grinds to a halt. What will happen? He, he loses it. I mean, imagine, if you will, you go to the bank, you cash your check, and then all of a sudden you lose half of it. Gone. Well, this is what has happened to this woman with these ten silver coins. She's not lost a penny here. This isn't a woman looking for a penny in her house or a nickel or a dime. This is a woman looking for $100 bills, gold coins of tremendous value. And of course, we see, just like the shepherd, when he lost it, he found it. And what does she do? She calls her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. Something was lost, something is found, and there's rejoicing. And as these Pharisees are listening in on this story, they say, well, of course we would have rejoiced. What fool wouldn't rejoice at such things? But the parable turns on what Jesus says in both 7 and 10. Look with me at verse 7. Jesus here says this parable is just like what happens in heaven. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Look at that text again. The context of rejoicing is heaven. You see that, right? But he modifies it, modifies the word joy with more. And the reader is thinking, how can heaven have more joy than it already has? I mean, let's honestly ask yourself that question. The angels are worshiping before the triune God. What is greater, what is of more joy than to participate in that worship? The wonderful worship. For for trillions of years, these angels have been worshiping back. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What arrests them? What stops them? What changes their focus? Jesus says what changes their focus is when one sinner comes to know God through saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. He says it this way. He says that to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And here it is. So that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So while you want to go and play golf on Sunday and go fishing on Sunday and go to Disney on Sunday and do whatever else you find entertaining, the angels in heaven who spend their time for all of eternity occupied with the eternal God are occupied in this moment with the church. Heaven is arrested by the glories of God revealed through the repentance of sinners who live in community together through a church. And we thought church was some optional activity that we could add to our spirituality to make us more holy. No, friend, it is the pinnacle part. It is the point of the whole thing. Because it is the place where repentance occurs. Faith in Christ is instilled through the regular preaching of God's Word. Jesus exposes their self-righteousness in these phrases. Here in verse 7, look at it again. 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, Jesus is not envisioning a person who doesn't need repentance. That is not His point. He's not envisioning 99 really righteous people and the Pharisees are like, yeah, that's us. No, the point is to say, hey, fools, there is no 99 righteous who don't need repentance. That's why we need to repent, he says. Or verse 10, so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the same point. The angels of God are occupied with, friend, you. They care about you. They care about your soul. They care about what God is doing to redeem a people for His own possession. This is what they're occupied with. This is what their attention is given. Friend, then doesn't it follow that we ought to be occupied with the same things? This is the logic of it, isn't it? Pharisee, if the angels in heaven are occupied with sinners like tax collectors, and even as the the older son says, prostitutes, kind of book in this idea of the most vile and wretched. If if angels are occupied with us, friend, why aren't you? The point is clear. Our greatest joy should be where heaven's joy lies. Let me say it again. Our greatest joy should be in what heaven's greatest joy is in. Sinners being saved by grace. Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus isn't just welcoming them and saying, hey, you know, you can come and live your best life now. You can just keep living. However, I I welcome everyone as they are. That's not what Jesus is saying. He uses the word repent. Repent means to stop living life your way. Period. And to start living God's new way through Christ through obedience of His Word, by forsaking sin and embracing Christ as a Savior. So in no way is what Jesus here is saying, hey, we just have to welcome people how they are. No, no, no. We still call for repentance, He says. But the point is, is that we extend salvation to all people without distinction. 
We don't discriminate. There's no discrimination. There's no worse sinner, friend. Because if there was, you wouldn't be welcomed. You wouldn't be allowed to participate. I wouldn't be allowed to participate. If the worst of the worst sinners were unwelcomed. J.C. Ryle says it this way, There are deep things in these saints. Our poor, weak minds are hardly able to grasp the perfect, perfect joy of heaven. But one thing can take an infinite willingness of God's part to receive sinners. He goes on, he says, however wicked a person may have been, on that day that he really turns from his wickedness and comes to God through Christ, God is well pleased. God has no pleasure in the death of a sinner, but has a great delight in true repentance. Friend, do you rejoice when a sinner repents? Do you call sinners to repentance? It is our occasion, isn't it? Matthew 28. We've not forgotten that, have we? To go make disciples. That's not the mandate of global missions. That's the mandate of you and I and every Christian. To cultivate in our lives relationships whereby the gospel can be communicated. Not through evangelistic revivals, but through one-on-one communication. So often, as a Calvinist, I get accused of not being evangelistic. And my response is often this, to my non-Calvinist friends. When's the last time you shared the gospel? When's the last time you evangelized? When's the last time you invited somebody to church? You see, it's our theology that God is calling a people unto Himself that drives our evangelism. It's this truth that we find here that God is in the business of saving sinners, not saints. That's what motivates me. That's what motivates everyone who believes the gospel. Because we're compelled to go. Because God is in this business. He says that He will... Jesus, Jesus says that whosoever comes to Me, I shall never cast away. I believe that with all my heart, with all my soul. So come to Jesus now. Believe in Him and you too will be saved. Perhaps you're the Pharisee who doesn't rejoice at the sight of a sinner who repents. Brothers and sisters, as we'll see in a moment, we must guard against anger on earth. We must join in the rejoicing of heaven and not cultivate in us a a sort of bitterness towards the world that is unwilling to see even the worst saved. No, God is at business saving even the worst. Let's go on then to the parable of the two lost sons. Verses 11 through 32, Jesus tells this masterful parable for which we do not have all the time to consider this morning, but we see the unfolding drama of it. Be caught caught up in the beauty of these words, my friend, that no movie or TV show could capture. Look at it. Jesus says that, that a man who was wealthy had two sons. 
And one son came to him and he says, I, hey, Dad, I want my money. I want what's coming to me, what I get, my inheritance. And so he gives him an inheritance. What a, what a great, great, he doesn't say, no, you need to wait, son. And so the son gets all of his money and he hangs around there for just a bit there. And he says, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done going to church. I'm done going to Sunday school. That is way too early to be getting up in the morning. Um, I'm done with uh, giving my money. I'm done with trying to, I'm going to go live how I want to live. And so he moves away. And the Bible says they began to squander, verse 13, his property in reckless living. One author says he looks in his bag and he says, man, I thought there was more money in there. What happened? He loses everything. Not only his money, but notice here, Verse 16, and no one gave him anything. Perhaps you, you've paid attention to people who have money. What happens when you have money? If, if you've ever watched those shows when people won, win the lottery, they tell you don't tell anybody. Don't try, try to keep it secret. Why? Because then you've got some crazy uncles all of a sudden that you didn't even know about. They're calling you up. Hey, can you give me a loan? I need a couple bucks. Right? When you've got a lot of money, people are attracted to you. And no doubt with this man, there was people who were literally flocking to him, wanting to live this licentious life with him. But as it founds, verse 14, he met with the providence of God. Oh, God was already at work to save this wretched man. Severe famine comes, and he has nothing. And he has to hire himself out to a swine dealer. Now, for you and I, we're like, hey, I like bacon. I don't get the big deal. I love, love pork. To a Jew, this guy just crossed the line. There's no coming back, man. I mean, there's no coming back. You, you're working with pigs. And, and Jesus sort of double downs on it. I mean, he, he kind of just really gets into their hearts and, and their minds. He says, no, 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 he doesn't just go work for the pigs. He becomes a pig. He lives in the pigsty, and, and he's lusting after, longing for the little pods that they're eating. He wants to eat out of the pig trough. He's at the bottom of his barrel, isn't he? Verse 17 is the life verse for everyone who has ever come to know Jesus. Look with me there. But when he came to himself. Oh, what a glorious words those are. He realized where he was. In the kindness and providence of God, God had brought him to his end in order that he might see that this licentious life, this sinful life, will not bring about joy and happiness. That money cannot buy happiness, but it only buys death. And he comes and he, he says, you know what? <laughs> Wait a minute here, I'm, I'm sitting here eating these pigs, and I, and I know my father's servants who are hired, they eat better than I do. Here's what I'll do, I'll go back to my father, I'll beg for his forgiveness. And I want you to see here something very key. Notice what he says in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father. That is, in other words, he's not going to stay where he's at. He has to leave this life. That's what repentance is, friend. It's leaving that life. And he will say to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
You see, repentance isn't only confessing our vertical sin, but it also is our horizontal sin. How have we sinned against others? But also, notice, he sinned against God. And he goes and he confesses, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. We heard them. It makes sense. It's clear enough, isn't it? And so the son gets up. He travels from this, this Gentile country, and there it is. There it is. There is your doctrine of election. There is your wondrous truth that God has at work in our salvation long before we ever come. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion. Like the shepherd searching out his sheep That one that was lost. The father doesn't stand in self-righteous condemnation. He would have been perfectly just to, to, to murder his son. His son deserved death. Not murder, execute. He had sinned against him. He had... He had shamed his family. He deserved execution under the law. But he embraces him and kisses him. And the son begins to cry out, Father, Father, here's what it is. And and, and before he can get his whole confession out, he says, I'm not even worthy to be called your servant. I, I can't even be welcomed in here. And all of a sudden, what does the father say? He says, stop, time out. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. The man literally just got out of a pigsty. He's covered in filth. He stinks. Pigs stink, friend. All right? This is, I mean, if you've ever been around a pig farm, they, they, it's awful smelling things. This man stinks. There's no shoes. He's filthy. He isn't eaten for days. And there's father wraps a robe around him, puts a ring on his finger to establish his sonship again, and puts feet, puts shoes on his feet, and says, bring the fattened calf, let's kill it, let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And everyone is following along. This is just like the other two parables. Something was lost and something is found and there was rejoicing. But Jesus doesn't end the parable there. This wonderful picture of redemption and reconciliation of a father and a son. A son who had shamed his father through reckless living is restored and forgiven. And his forgiveness is put on display through the celebration Verse 25, now the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the home, and he heard music and dancing. Clearly, they weren't Baptist. Maybe they were Presbyterians, I don't know. Do they do that? There, there was rejoicing, and this, this, this older son is incensed, and he, and he gets one of the servants, and he says, what is going on inside that house? And the servant says, your brother is back. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. He couldn't take it. A wicked sinner 
He knew. He had, he had heard the stories when he was down at the feed store. He heard about what his brother was doing. He had heard about his brother living the way he was living with prostitutes and sinners. He had squandered away half of his father's inheritance. And in a moment, without reconciliation, without, without any word, his father welcomes him, him back without needing to do any work to, to pay back his father. He can't have it. He's angry. But again, friend, look. Look with me. Verse 27. Or verse 28. It continues. The father... came out and entreated him. And the man goes on, the the older brother goes on and says, look at all these terrible things that has happened. And and notice he calls his brother your son. He doesn't even identify him as his own brother anymore. He has disowned him. And notice the accusation in verse 29. He levies against his father. Look these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet, yet you never gave me a young goat that I can celebrate with my friends. He's like so many of us who came to know Jesus at a young age. Who didn't live a wild and reckless life. whose testimony is, there's never been a day I didn't know the Lord. And we complain all the time, and we say, you know, I've done all of these great things for you, Lord, and here you are welcoming in these riffraff, these sinners, these adulterers, these fornicators. The father has compassion on his son. Verse 31, he said, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus, in telling this parable, reveals the character of our God. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Our God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He will never turn away one sinner who turns, repents, and believes in Him. I wonder, friend, have you gone your own way? Perhaps there's sin in your life that no one but you and the Lord knows about. Will you repent and Leave your licentious ways and come and follow Jesus? Have you gone so far that you think that God will not rescue you? Oh no, the Father has been pursuing you long before He even created you. Before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. God has set His love on you. He's been running after you. Will you repent and believe in Him? He will welcome you with open arms. He will embrace even the vile sinner. As we sung Amazing Grace, 
he would save a wretch like me? Oh, friend, he will save you. He saves sinners. Come to Jesus and rest in him. Perhaps you are like the older son here, unimpressed by our Heavenly Father's benevolence towards sinners. Do you welcome the worst in your life? Or only those who seem to have their life together? Do you associate yourself with sinners so that you can call them to repentance and faith? I find J.C. Ryle again helpful in this point. He says, the older brother is an exact image of a large section of today's Christian church. Thousands of people hate a full, free, unchanged gospel to be preached. They complain that ministers open the door too wide and that the gospel of grace will result in licentiousness. When we meet such people, let us remember this passage. Their voice is the voice of the older brother. Let us be aware of this spirit infecting our hearts. Brothers and sisters, as a congregation, let it never be accused of us that we would ever turn someone away because they don't meet some standard outside of the gospel. They don't have the right education. They don't have the right economic background. They don't have the right job. They don't have the right family. Their children. Oh my goodness, let's not get started on their children here now. And then and the grandchildren, that's a whole other discussion altogether. But let us welcome sinners like you and like me. This parable ends with a question, and I want to end this sermon with it. There's a party inside. The younger son has been embraced home. The older brother is standing outside in the driveway, angered at his father. His father comes to him and asks him this question, will you come and join the party? Will you come and join the party? Will this younger brother stop his sulking, stop his anger? And come and party with his father and join in the celebration. And friend, the question is for you. Will you join in where God is already at work? Saving sinners for his glory through Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you are and have always been a friend of sinners. Your word tells us that you loved us. Before we ever knew you. That you have been sovereignly and providentially exhorting, working the events of our life to draw us near to you by your love. And that like the father embracing this son he, and the older son. We are enveloped in your love for us, divine love that is unconditional, unmerited, 
I pray this morning that we might find repentance in us. To turn from our sin. That we might join in with the angels this morning in rejoicing over lives changed and transformed. Even as a congregation we celebrate through the waters of baptism in just a number of weeks. A testimony that God is at work saving sinners through the ministry of First Baptist Church. And may that continue as we scatter today, taking this gospel to all those who would be willing to listen. Do it for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.